Uh, good morning, and um, uh, it's a joy, it's a privilege to be back uh, here at uh, Christ Fellowship. Uh, thank you all for, uh, for your kind invitation to come back and, uh, and preach. So uh, let, me, uh, let me pray, and then um, we'll look at God's Word together. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you again, Lord, for the preaching of your Word. And, um, and so now we ask for your blessing, uh, Lord, for, those, uh, for the one who speaks and for those who listen. And uh, Father, we know that there is no way for us to uh, come face to face with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and not be changed. And so for that, we ask that you would do that good work in us, uh, by your grace and by your spirit, we ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Um, uh, some of you may be familiar with the, um, with the boxer Muhammad Ali. And there's a story that's told about Muhammad Ali. Um, and it's one of those stories you wish um, were true, uh, even if it wasn't. Um, but so the story goes about, about the boxer Muhammad Ali when he was on a, uh, he was on a flight. He was on a plane. Uh, one time, and uh, the plane and, and the plane uh, got into some turbulence uh, in midair, and uh, and basically the, um, the 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 flight attendant came around and and asked everybody to buckle up their seatbelt. Everybody complied, everybody agreed except for Muhammad Ali, and so the flight attendant came to him and said, "Sir, please put on your seatbelt." And Muhammad Ali, as he was always known to do, you know, he always had that kind of attitude. And he, and he looked at her and said, Superman, no need, no seatbelt. Um, and, uh, and the flight attendant just looked at him and said, Superman, no need, no airplane either. All right? So, um, okay, so look, um, I'm telling you that story uh, for a reason, all right? Because here, here, and here, here's the point. It's one thing to claim you are Superman when you're on the ground. It's another thing to claim you're Superman when you're confronted with the reality of flight, okay? So when you look at this text here that you have here in John chapter 8, John chapter 7, verse 53 to 811, here's the thing that I, that I, that, that I want you to, 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 to take away today, that we are all exposed for who we really are when we are confronted with the reality of who Jesus really is. Okay, we are exposed for who we really are when we are confronted with the reality of who Jesus really is. And so if you look at this text, you know, it's uh, j- just just uh, just briefly, um, you, if you look at the text, if you have your Bibles and you're looking at it, whether it's on a on a on a on a screen or on, on actual print Bible, m- most of your Bibles have it bracketed off like they're square brackets around this section. Um, and, and the reason has nothing to do with, your, uh, with, with whether, the, whether people are... People are pretty sure that this story happened. What, what we have here in the, in the history of the way that the Bible has come to us is pe- people are not sure where to put it. And, and you can tell, right? The, the way it's cut up, it's a little bit weird, right? It's cut up in verse 53 in chapter 7, but then the story sort of continues into chapter 8, and then in chapter 8, verse 12, if you look into your Bibles again, it continues with Jesus talking about being the light of the world. All right? So it's a little bit awkward um, in, the way that, in terms of way it is placed. However, everybody, everybody looks at this text and says that it completely fits with, with the rest of the Bible account, with the Gospels, for sure. But we also look at the story, and there's a lot of questions that, that you might have. Uh, even when, even if you have never read this section of the Bible before, um, even when you heard the text, 
read that there's some things about it that might, might seem a little, bit, a little bit odd to you, right? So, for example, right, if you're looking at the story, you have the story about this woman who's caught in adultery. She's never named, right? You, you have no idea who she is. And, 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 and the, the sin of adultery, right, is it, it, it's, it's two people, right? But in the story here, you only have one person being brought. So where's the man? Right? Where is the other, other person who, who, is, who, is, who is part of this sin? Right? That, that's one issue. The, the second issue that a lot of people have is this whole idea of Jesus riding with his finger in the dirt. What was he riding? The passage does not tell us, tell us that at all. People speculate a lot about what Jesus wrote. We have no idea, but that's a question. And then thirdly, when you come to the end of the story, in chapter 8, verse 11, you have Jesus' pronouncement, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. And then you read that text, but that, you're like, what, what happens? We, we never hear about this story. We, are, we, we never hear about this woman after this story. We have no idea what happens. right? In every other story in the Gospel of John, you, you see Jesus saying something and doing something, and something happens in the story. Whether it's water that gets changed into wine in, cha- in John chapter 2. Whether, whether in chapter 5, whether, whether the, the lame man is, is restored so that he can walk. Or in chapter 6, when, uh, when, when Jesus feeds the 5,000 and more than 5,000 people are fed and the 12 baskets left over. In every one of those, you know, you, 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 in all of these stories, you can see there's some effect of what happens when Jesus says or does something. But I would like to say to you that really it is here in this story. It's just not what we normally think or what we look for in terms of the response. All right? So, so here's, how I, here's how we're going to look at this text. I, I want you to think about and look at this text as, as if you are looking at a comic strip. All right? Bear with me. All right? Some of you, right? I don't know how many of you love comics. All right? But if you, but if you look at comics, some of you may be familiar, familiar with those comics that don't have a lot of words in them, right? They're all, they're all done in pictures, but then there's usually one sentence, one phrase that, 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 that is usually put at the bottom of, the, of, of, of that that kind of pulls everything together, right? It's, it's like you know, all, all those fancy comics without those speech bubbles, if you're familiar with that, right? Here's, here's how this story is put together, right? It's the phrase that pulls the whole story together, is this phrase at the very end in verse 11 when Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's the phrase. But the rest of the story is we are being, we are, it's almost like we are, we are giving, we are, it's been given to us in pictures. So here's how we want to we move towards that text. But in order to get the beauty and the force of that phrase, Neither do I condemn you. We, we, we need to begin here at the beginning of this text and, and work towards it. So we're going to look at it under three pictures, all right, if you will. Three sort of big ideas. First, the picture that you're looking at is the reality of what sin is. All right, the reality of what sin is and does, right? That's the first part. The second is the reality or the picture of who Jesus really is. And then thirdly, the reality of how grace works. 
Okay, so the first, what sin really is, second is who Jesus is, and then thirdly is how grace works, all right? So if you're looking at the text, you, we, we, we'll look at the first picture, what sin really is. All right, so if you look at the text, you can see that at the beginning of the story, all right, the beginning of the story, Jesus is teaching in the temple. Now, this is not unusual, right? Jesus does this. This is part of his ministry. That's what he's doing. So it's something that he is something that he's doing like he would normally be doing. And then secondly, you see people are gathering. It says that people were coming. It's happening early in the morning. All right. It's like as if people are coming to church. Right. It's almost like you're gathering for church in the morning and you are and, and, and you have a preacher, somebody speaking and you have people gathering. It's like normal Sunday morning at the Jerusalem temple, if you will. All right. And then suddenly the whole scene is sort of busted open, right? Because something unusual and irregular happens. You have these scribes and the Pharisees dragging this woman, like as if, they, as if that those doors just busted open, and they're dragging somebody down the middle aisle up to the front. That, that, that it's, you, you can think about it in that way. That's what's happening, right? And, and the person that they're dragging is someone they said, is someone that they, who has been caught in adultery. Look in verse 4, it says, in the very act. All right? So, in other words, when you think about this person, this is not someone who is accused of adultery. According to them, if we take it at face value, she is guilty. All right? That, 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 that there is no question to her guilt. But at the same time, what you have is something that is, that is often done in secret, something that is done in private, and now is being brought into the public. And the people who are dragging her up front are these scribes and the Pharisees. All right? The scribes were the lawyers of the day. Right? You, they, they, their concern were the legal concerns of the day. They were, they were concerned with, the, with whether people were keeping the, the Jewish law as precisely as possible. As accurately as possible. And then the, the Pharisees, on the other hand, were like the moral police of the day, right? They are concerned, their concern was for culturally, they wanted the, their, their people to be living moral, pure, holy lives. And so culturally, that's what they were about. So you had two groups of people, one concerned about the legal, another one concerned about the moral. And what I want you to think about is the contrast between these two groups of people, between this woman and these scribes and the Pharisees, right? You have this woman, right, probably half-dressed, being brought into public in front of everybody. And then you have, in contrast, you have these scribes and Pharisees, Dressed probably in the clothing that is representative of their trade. Legal trade, moral, right? Fully clothed. Then you have one woman, the woman who is completely, that there's no doubt as to her guilt. And then you have the other group of people who are completely convinced of their innocence. Right? Because what they're there to do is basically to point is, is to bring this woman into, into the presence of Jesus. And notice that what they're doing here is, according to verse 6, is their concern is really not about the law or about morality. 
Because if they were really concerned about the position in the law, they would have brought, they would have brought both the man and the woman. And if they were really convinced about the moral state of Jerusalem or the, of that day, they, they, would have, they would have addressed the full effect of whatever the law required. Deuteronomy 22 verses 20 to 24 in the Old Testament actually spells out what, it, what, what needed to happen. And they had it right when they said, the law required us that such a woman be stoned to death. That was what the law required. That's what they, they, they knew it. Right? They knew it. It's not, it's not that they were, uh, they, they, they had no idea. Right? It's not that they were ignorant. They knew it. But at that moment, they are also showing that what their, their primary concern is not about the woman, is not about the legal code, and it's not about the moral code. None of it is, is, their, is their concern. What they are there to do is to trap Jesus. Now, how would this end up being a trap for Jesus? This would be a trap for Jesus, right? Because if Jesus were to say to, to, to them when they ask the question, Hey, Jesus, what should we do with this woman? If Jesus said, stone her... Really, at the end of the day, that was not a right that Jesus could take upon himself. The right for capital punishment was something that was held by the Romans. The Romans were the ones in charge, right? That's why later on in the story, when it comes to whenever the, whenever the, the, the Jews wanted to put Jesus to death, they couldn't do it. They have to go to Pilate, the governor, in order for him to be able to pronounce death on Jesus, right? Same thing here. Ultimately, Jesus can't say stone her, right? But if he did, then they would go to the Roman government and they would say, hey, this, this Jewish leader who's talking really big out here, he's taking on, he's, he's basically doing your job. What, what is supposed to be your responsibility, he's assuming to himself. Go get him, right? On the other hand, if Jesus were to say, don't stone her, the scribes and the Pharisees would just turn around to the people. Remember, there's a crowd right there. And it says, this is your rabbi, right? Either A, he doesn't know the law, or B, he's not as pure and holy as you think he is. Because he's trivializing this woman's sin by, by not keeping the law. As, now, this is not unusual, right? This happens a lot in the Gospels. People, whenever the scribes and the Pharisees show up or whenever the religious leaders show up, they're always trying to find a way of trying to trap Jesus. But here's my invitation to you as you look at this text, all right? right? You might not be in the camp of the woman who is caught in adultery, right? The knowledge of your sin is your own. Not many people know it. Right? You, you might not even identify with the scribes and the Pharisees. But there's another group of people here, isn't there? If you look down in the text, you realize that the end of the story, the one who is left at the very end is just Jesus and the woman. Everybody else is gone. Everyone who is there at the beginning of the story is gone. 
right? The, the, the only person who is left in the presence of Jesus, who remains in the presence of Jesus, who is the one who knows that she has no right to be there. She has no right to be there. She's in the temple. She has no right to be there. Is the one who is completely certain of her guilt. She was caught in the act. That, there's no question to her guilt. She is also the one who wears her shame in public. Right? Everybody knows. They come up to the group and they announce to everybody. Her sin is known to the whole group of people right there. Completely exposed in front of everybody. And yet, at the end of the story, she's the one who is still there. The Pharisees, covered with their self-righteousness, are gone. And guess what? The people, the people who were there, sitting and listening to Jesus teach, church folks, right? They're gone. Right? It, it's, it's the one that we, that we least expect to be there. Is the one who's there. And, and, this is what, and this is the nature of sin, isn't it? When, when we think about, when we think about what, what is sinful, we, our eyes are naturally drawn to that which is the most scandalous, the one that is, the one that is most blatant, and is the one that we might probably think will never happen to us or has never happened to us. That, that, that's where we go. Right? It's part of our nature. Right? There's been a lot of talk in, um, if you're keeping up with any of the, sort of the Christian news. Right? There's a lot of scandals going on with different big, big mega churches and church leaders kind of losing the position, whether it's about abuse of power or sex or money or something. All of it, these, all these different sort of things are coming down, coming crashing down. Right? You have the, you, if you're familiar with any of that, there's plenty of that going on. And and I admit, I, right, it's something that is tantalizing about it. We, we're attracted to it because we feel that where we are is where we sit is not anywhere near where all those people sit. And, as, and it's, it's also possible, if you look at this story, that even the, even, even the person who is the casual bystander can walk away with indifference. It's not my problem. It's not about me. The, the, what, what Jesus is addressing is the big stuff. Not me. Right? And the people leave. Right? They, they're, not in the, they, they, they're not part of the story. They're not, part of the, they're not part of this. And so they leave. And the person who actually stays, the one who actually has that pronouncement of Jesus upon her, is the one that we would least expect to hear it. This is why if you go back to the Psalms, right? For example, the, the, the Psalm is in Psalm 19.12. He says, who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. What is the psalmist saying? He's saying, on my best day, on, on, on my best day, my fault still is there. Right? I, 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 look, to, I look to Jesus every day. At every point, right? That, 
In Psalm 139, the psalmist actually pleads and he cries out. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any, any offensive way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. Martin Luther once, in one of his writings, he actually says, when you sin, sin boldly. And, and he's not, that is not an invitation to sin. But, but what, what, what Luther is saying is when you sin, sin boldly. What he's saying is, he says that he says, our, our sin is always going to be an invitation for us to bring ourselves before God. Because the next part of that phrase, he says, he says when you sin, sin boldly. But, 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 when you, but when you consider Christ, consider him boldly. Right? In other words, it, the way that we think about our sin is in direct proportion to how we think about Jesus. And what you have in this story are people who are being challenged by Jesus himself. Right? Who is Jesus? And that's our second point. Who is he? Right? Who, who, is, the, who, who is the one who is, doing, who, who, who is actually speaking, who is actually here, who is now, verses 6b, Onwards, you see that what Jesus does is, is that rather than responding immediately, right? Because they're asking him the question, what are you going to do, Jesus? What are you going to do? The, the law requires that we stone her. What do you say? And notice that Jesus' response is not a say. It's a do, right? What does he do? He stoops down and writes and starts writing with his finger in the dirt. That's a lot of speculation about what exactly Jesus wrote. The Bible doesn't say. So it's, usual, so, it, so it's useless for us to speculate what he wrote. But we do know this. We know that he wrote. And in all of scripture, in all the Bible, there's only ever recorded one who was ever written with his finger. And that is God himself. Right? If you go back to the Old Testament and you look at the story in Exodus chapter 31. Right? Exodus 31, whenever Moses receives the two tablets, right? the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 31, 18, it says that Moses received the tablets of stone written by the finger of God. Right? And then later on in Deuteronomy 9 verse 10. In Deuteronomy 9 verse 10, when Moses is recounting the story of God's people back to them, what does he say? He says, on the holy mountain, when you heard the voice of God and you received his law written by his finger. Right? In other words, what Jesus is doing here in this story, he is making a direct connection back to the Old Testament. Notice what the, the, the point of the story. The center part of the story here. Is the question about the law. Right? The, the very thing. The very thing that's in view here. Is the same thing in, back in Exodus. Which, which Moses actually received from God. Right? The exact same thing. We're talking about the same thing. And so what you have in this story is. You have to think about it this way. Right? The one who is descending to the ground who is stooping to the ground, verse 6b and 7, and writing with his finger in the dirt, is the same one who descended on Mount Sinai, 
who stooped down in the Old Testament and with his finger wrote the law back then. Right? What Jesus is doing, and, 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 what, and, and it's interesting in the story, right? If you, if, you look, if you look at the story, you know that you know, they're all ready to stone her. And then it says that one by one they left. Right? They're starting with the oldest one. Right? Starting with the oldest, moving on to the youngest. Right? Right? But a lot of people are trying to wonder what, what, why, why it is. I wonder if it's because the older one got it first, what Jesus was doing. That, that what he was demonstrating, what he was pointing to, was that. Right? And, and when they saw it, they got it. Right? They, they got it. That, where, that what they were doing, what they were engaged in, was being exposed for what it really is. Right? It was a, it was a, it, they, they, they were a bunch of frauds. Right? They, they were exposed for, not, not just because of the situation, but because they came face to face with Jesus himself. And Jesus will not allow us to take him for anyone less than who he really is. Right? And that's why in the whole Gospel of John, over and over again, Jesus is pointing, he, he's demonstrating over and over again that he is really the Son of God. That's who he is. Any less than that, we will not have the biblical Jesus. We will not have the Jesus of the Bible. We will have a Jesus of our own making, but we will not have the Jesus of the Bible. And so when Jesus says, he says, whoever is without sin... Let him cast the first stone in the light of, an, of a holy God who is. Right? There is none righteous. It exposes all of us. Just as it exposed the people of that day, it exposes us today. Now, this doesn't mean that we cannot pass judgment and on, 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 on what's wrong or what's going on wrong. That's not the point. The point is, if we are unwilling to confront our own sin, it undercuts our ability to be able to pass judgment on anything else around us. And guess what? The ground is level. Right? There is no point scale for sin. And so what you have here in this story is that when Jesus stoops to write in his right, right with his finger, he exposes all of us. And so that's what you have here. Right? Third picture. Right? The first picture is a picture of, who's, of what sin is. Second picture is a picture of who Jesus is. And then thirdly is a picture of how grace works. What's amazing about this story is this. Right? Remember I said, remember we said that when we talked about this woman coming in, all these eyes are looking on her. They have announced to the whole crowd as to her sin. Her sin is in front of us. Her shame is something that she's wearing. Her guilt is there on her head. Everything is there. And guess what, what Jesus does in this story? Right? It's amazing, right? Because what happens is when Jesus says, and everybody, everybody starts leaving, it says that everybody leaves. Right? It's like the whole church clears out. Right? Is that when Je whenever Jesus st stands up, and he says, neither do I, when he says that whoever is without sin, let him cast the first stone, Everybody leaves, like the whole church clears out. The whole, there's no one left, right? It's, it's almost like Jesus is ejecting all the people and in one sense removing 
her shame. Right? It's, it's, it's a beautiful picture. Right? Because what, what Jesus is doing, what in, it's not only that he's confronting the people with the reality of his holiness, of his otherness, that he is God, that he's not to be trivialized with, that he is not just an interpreter of the law, but the one who actually gave it. At that same time, he's also acting as the one who is removing her shame. Both of those things are happening at the same time. Right? The holiness of God is being demonstrated, and at the very same time, God is removing and ejecting the shame of this woman. No one. And that's the question he asked right at the end. He said, where is anyone? Is there anyone left to accuse you? Is, is anyone there? And then, and then she says, no one. Right? No one. Right? It, the, the, the picture here is, 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 is really amazing. That, but it does ask us this question. Jesus, at the end of the story, says, neither do I condemn you. How can Jesus say that? Is, is Jesus sort of saying, well... It's just one time. You did it once, don't do it again. Right? Is that what Jesus is saying? No. Right? And, and I, think this is why the, this is, I think this is why this story is beautiful. Because if you have your Bibles and you flip over to chapter 18 in your Bibles, right? If you go over to John chapter 18, there's another story there. And this is the story of Jesus' arrest. Right? These, in, in John chapter 7, the scribes and the Pharisees, right? It says it was early in the morning when they showed up. So they got this woman at night. In John chapter 18, they came for him at night when he was engaged in the most intimate, not illicit, of expressions of his relationship, of prayer to his father. Now these people come, not armed with the letter of the law. They come with clubs and weapons and torches. They bring him not into a court, uh, in, a, in a religious court, in a temple. They take him to a real court, not a hypothetical one where decisions are made, but where, real, where decisions have real consequences. They take Jesus, strip him naked, half clothed like this woman. They stand him up in the midst, in the middle, just like they do with this woman. And at the end of it, at the end of that story, you know what Pilate says? He turns to the crowd and he says, I find no basis to condemn this man. Do you see the reversal? In John chapter 8, you have the story of a woman who is guilty and goes away uncondemned. Neither do I condemn you. In John chapter 18, you have someone who is completely guiltless and is condemned. And experiences the full legal ramifications of that. And moral. He goes to the, he dies on a Roman cross. That was what the law would have required. Crucify him. He bore the, few, he, he bore the complete burden of sin. 
was placed upon him. All of those things are true of Jesus. That's why those words are so sweet. When we speak of grace, grace is not a commodity. It is not a thing. Right? When we think about grace, you know, when one writer says, we, are, we, are, we think it's like, it's like God having like pocket money. Right? And, and we think that the people who sin more need a little bit more. Right? Because they, they you know, right? But for, but for others, you know, we're doing pretty fine. Just need a little bit. Right? Grace is not divine pocket money. It's not something that God pulls out of his pocket and gives to it. One writer puts it like this way. He says, grace is a shorthand way of us speaking about the personal and loving kindness of God. Whereby God gives us ultimately, where ultimately God gives us himself. What is grace? Grace is Jesus. Grace is where that woman stands at the end of our story. Grace is not something she gets. Grace is who she is looking at. Because the one who, is, who actually makes those pronouncements upon her is the very one who gives himself for her. And he will. Right? In a little while, according to the big story in the Gospel of John, that's what he will do. That's why for us, every day, when we talk about why, why is it that we live on the basis of grace? We don't live on the basis of grace because God just drops something into our lap so that we can make it through our day. Ultimately, the, the Christian life is one of communion. When we talk about the means of grace, for example, if you say, where, where would I go? Right? right? Church is not extra. Right? When we gather for worship every day, how does God commune with us? Where do we receive Him? We receive Him right here. Right? When we encounter Christ in our, in, in our personal devotions, that's not, that's not just an activity to get through. Our, we, we, we receive God's grace because we encounter Jesus. We encounter Christ. And, and, and I think that's when we get to the end of the story. That's why this story is so remarkable and it's so beautiful. Because what you have at the end is that the one who actually gets it is the one, is the one who thinks she, de she least deserves it. And that's the gospel. That's why we call it the gospel of grace. Right? It, it's, it's good news. It's, it's good news for people who do not deserve it. Right? It's something that God gives because he gives us himself. Let me close. Two stories. All right? One's a personal story. One's a story. And I'll tell you the personal story first. All right? When I was... Um, when I, so part of, my, part of my testimony, part of my story is having to do a lot of my health issues. Right? That's part of what has led to some of my decline in my eyesight and things like that. But I had a liver and a kidney transplant many, many years ago. Actually, up here in Memphis. Right? And I was a student. I was a student at Ole Miss when all of that happened. And when I was a student at Ole Miss, I, you know, I had health insurance, but I had like, you know, the cheapy student health insurance, right? And so, and, you know, and, and, and that's okay to cover certain things. It's not enough to cover an organ transplant, all right? Le not least of it, two organs, all right? And I remember after my surgery, this was after, all right, after, my parents and I are sitting in the office of the social worker. And, and she's outlining to us, and she's outlining to us um, 
And she said, and, and, you know, that, you know, she said, surgery, you know, we're, we're really grateful that we can, that, that you were able to have your surgery. Um, and she said, you're, you're going to be receiving a bill in the mail. All right, you're going to be receiving a bill in the mail. When you take it, keep it. All right, and don't worry about it. I had no idea, right? I had no idea how much the surgery costs, right? And if you know anything about being in a hospital, they charge you for everything, right? Every, every Band-Aid, every urinal, whatever, right? Everything gets charged, right? Um, and so, and so, I, you know, so, yeah, a week later, I received this bill, right? And it's one of those bills that are, like, joined together, right? You can, like, use it to, like, you know, measure out like 30 feet or something, right? It's one of those things that kind of stretches out for miles and miles. It was one of those, right? And of course, you, you, you look at the very bottom and you look at the amount that's there. You're like, that's what my surgery cost, right? In, in other words, I, and I had no idea, right? I had no idea. I had already received the surgery, right? I had a liver and a working kidney, but I had no idea how much it cost. Right? Now, that's a small example. Right? It's personal to me. But all of us live in that place between the gap of what Christ has done and our lack of knowledge or just the, the immeasurableness of the cost. And, and in some ways, we, 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 that, that's where we live. And, and that's where we need to live. We, we need to live between that place of, Lord, I have no idea what it costs you. I mean, I, I know it. I've read it. I've heard, the, I've heard it over and over again. I can open up my envelope and look at the money, the cost there. But, but it's, it's something that I will never grasp. And like this woman, right? We have no idea what happens. I have no idea, right? And it would be useless for us to speculate. But if... In some ways, she walks out of our story, and she walks out of the story. All she knows is, this, is, is Jesus' words ringing in her ear. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. All right? Let me close with this last story. All right? So some of you may be familiar with, um, well, I'm familiar, but, um, you know, we, uh, I, one, one of the ministries I was involved with was, it was, uh, was international ministry when I first came to the States. And I heard this at a... Um, at an international student conference many, many, many years ago. Um, but the speaker was recounting this story about a young woman who comes from a Muslim country, came to the United States, and when she came to the United States, she, um, uh, through the ministry of one of, these, uh, one of these Christian organizations on campus, came to Christ. Right? It was, uh, it, it was, it was joyous. She was baptized. Um, but she went home. Her parents were not happy. But especially who was not happy was her, was, was her uncle, was, was an uncle of hers. And her uncle met her at the airport, took her to his house, and she thought, okay, that was strange. Right? But in that house, and this, and this woman recounts this story, her uncle proceeded to beat her, like to beat her. Because he was not happy. As a Muslim, he was not happy that his, um, that his niece had converted to Christianity. And in her story, the woman recounts it. She said, as my uncle was beating me, at that moment, at that moment, she said, I knew the difference between Christianity 
what I believed in and what he believed in. He was willing to kill for what he believed in. He was willing to kill for his faith. And I was willing to die for mine. He was willing to kill for his faith. I was willing to die for mine. Brothers and sisters, Christianity, although ultimately is good news, is the gospel of grace because we have one who has given his life for you and for me. And that's what you have in the story. Ultimately, what you have at the center of the story is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you ask, where do we find grace? Jesus is the one that we point to. Right? We point to him because he has given his life for you and for me. And that's what makes this phrase, neither do I condemn you, such good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again, Lord, for um, your word. We thank you again, Lord, that you are a kind, kind Savior. Uh, Father, we read this story and we are amazed. Um, Lord, at your wisdom in the way that you responded to those who would try to trap you, but even more amazed at the way that you demonstrate tender kindness, not minimizing sin, not making light of it, not trivializing it, but in, in all your glory and who you really are. The God of Sinai now riding in the dirt in the ground is the same one who gives himself up in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ on a cross. And Father, that's why today we can all stand uncondemned that Lord, that, 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 those phrase, that phrase, neither do I condemn you, is something that we can walk away. Um, but I pray, Lord, that it is something that we will live with every day. Not because of something, of, something once that happened years ago, uh, but a reality that we live in and bask in every day of our lives. Would you, by your grace, the kindness of Christ, would you do that for us again this morning? We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand.